Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the mini break. Your date podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Monday, June 12th, the second Grand Slam of the season is now officially in the books. What a 2023 French Open it was. Of course, the championship weekend offered us a definitive answer, at least for now, to the question, who has the most men's slam singles titles in men's tennis history? That answer, of course, is now Novak Djokovic as he captures title number 23 this past Sunday, a straight set victory over Kasper Root, of course. Saturday's women's singles final, the more compelling of the two matches. And boy, was it fun to watch Iga Sviantek and Karolina Mukova slug things out. Of course, ultimately, it was Sviantek capturing her third French Open title, fourth slam title of her career. She continues to uh, ascend to the top of the women's game and perhaps more importantly, cement herself as the player to beat right now in this 2023 season. Of course, on today's show, what I want to do for all of you listeners is recap our two singles finals, talk about all the twists, all the turns, and then put a final bow on this 2023 French Open. Who were the biggest winners? What were some of the bigger disappointments? What were some of the storylines that are going to stick with us as we continue to progress through this season? And if we're planning to tackle all of those things, you know I like to have some help along the way. Thankfully, I do, as joining us for what for him qualifies as the first time in quite some time on the show is a man you all know best as an editorial producer for all things tennis.com and tennis channel essentially a co-host of this mini break podcast show a returning champion here on our cracked rackets podcast and our man on the grounds throughout the course of the 2023 french open welcome back to the show david kane dk how are you feeling today it's true. It has been a while since I've been on this podcast, and I'm sure there's been a lot of speculation as to why. If you follow both Gruskin and I on Spotify, you may have a sense of what's been going on. That's right. He and I we're we're in love. We've got a. I hope you. I hope you'll follow us all on the Gruskane Instagram account. But it's real. But and we've got a lot of content coming for you, and we hope you'll enjoy the full multimedia experience of our romance. It really is just the perfect way to end this Rolling Garros. Gruss Kane is better than Kane skin. Like, I agree. I think Gruss Kane fits in nice. The I-N becomes an A-N-E. So great job. By I spent a, a long walk from the Metro coming up with that one. I was like, how do our names fit together? I should have <laughs> known that was the bit that was coming because you warned me of such bits in the future. And there may be more to come. And again, that's why we're happy to have you back on the show today. I don't know if I'm I initially ready. had a Miyukato bit, but I've decided that was maybe too dark. That maybe the reason why I wasn't on was because I'd been banned from from podcasting because I may have thrown something at you. But I figured, you know what, we're gonna we're gonna keep it light. 
like a Moliere play. We're going to keep it light. <laughs> there are no bits too dark for this show, DK. This is your playground, please. I enjoy everything you do. And the best part, I know you accuse, uh, you accuse this. It's Gil Gross who calls me the fake editor-in-chief because what editing do we actually do here at Crack Rackets? But worst comes to worst, I just cut the bit. Don't you worry. Um, yeah, look, I don't even know if I'm ready to discuss Tsitsipas Bedosa because I won't lie. It entered a few of my non-tennis bubble chats in life, and I veer somewhere between – I guess we're going to chat about it here to start, folks. This is the, the I was deep. told this was all we'd be talking about. I was told this was a CT Dosa podcast. Don't <laughs> let him tell you that we were going to talk about the men's and women's final. It was going to be about romance and couples and <laughs> – the second half of Breakpoint. This is what we're. T- this is what we. This is what you come to us for. You don't come to us for the tennis. Well, look, I read the the articles for tennis.com, and of course, DK's been killing it. Did kill it the entirety of the French Open, not just fun things like Cici Dosa or whatever it's being called. What is it, Bedosa Pass? They're welcome, by the way, because I called it Cici Dosa, and then wouldn't you know, not seventy two hours later, the Cici Dosa <laughs> Instagram account, and I told them basically to start an Instagram account like Gem's Life, Alina Svitolina and oh. Gael Monfils, and sure enough, I I want ten percent out of whatever revenue they're they're making from the the inevitable endorsement deals are going to come from this this really just high wattage uh, power couple. Well, speaking of that number, ten percent. You ask me for my reaction for it. This is it. I guess this will be the one time we address it, and then you can have the final word. I veer between, I now think Tsitsipas is 10% more likely to win a slam because, shout out to Stefanos. Um, at the same time, f*** it. Like, let him have fun. It's Who cares? You're across the world. You're young. You have money. They're enjoying one another's company. Nowadays, that goes on Instagram. Like, who cares? Let them have fun. So first of all, I was on the ground floor of this this burgeoning couple. <laughs> Literally, like, the reason why you go on hotel ground floor, you were like, you, you were I, scoping? I was on the Ray de Chausse of this relationship, if you will. <laughs> I was in the TC compound, the Tennis Channel TV compound, because I was not the media center proper. I was in the TC compound and our... Uh, cameraman slash photographer slash editor extraordinaire Matt Fitzgerald comes back to the compound and goes, I saw your girl, this is a pause match. And of course me, I was like, which one? What do you mean? And <laughs> he said, Paola Bedosa. And I said, Paola Bedosa? I, I am under the impression that Paola Bedosa has left Paris because she had hurt her spine and was no longer in the tournament, was flying off to Dubai to get treatment. What pray tell could she be doing in Paris? I find this very hard to believe, but I saw the pictures and right away, the green nails, you can't hide behind those green nails. I knew I, the, the evidence was right on Instagram. And based on the way that they've they rolled out this relationship, subsequently speaking, it seems like this was maybe perhaps in the works over the last several weeks. They were, it seems like a lot of content has rolled out that you don't think necessarily has been all filmed in the last half week. It feels like it's been like we're in this, we're already at the six month anniversary of Titi Dosa and they only <laughs> launched the account last Friday. So, I mean, we are, we're, we are going full steam ahead. Do I care about the relationship on a practical level? I mean, I hope it means that they both end up playing better tennis. It certainly was the case for Bedosa when she started her relationship, her previous relationship. She took off like a rocket, just like went totally, you know, up to the career high of number two. All her best results came pretty much in the wake of that new relationship. And you forget that that happened actually in the wake of her splitting with the coach that had took taken her to what, top? top 15 top 10 i thought that there was really going to be an issue it seems like this could be another big step for her i don't actually know how it's going to affect it's it feels like right now it's a lot of paula absorbing it's you know 
shall we call them witticisms? <laughs> Philosophic <laughs> bends. I don't really know how it's going to affect Steph. It seems like they're having fun, um, but I do hope it means that they both play better tennis as a result. If their results kind of tail off, I think our appreciation of the content they may or may not continue to disseminate will 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 go with that if we're if they're winning a lot and we're getting a lot of content fine if they're not and all we're getting are quirky videos and i think that's going to really get old very fast yeah all right i think that's a fair assessment i will say in terms of things i think david kane will be proud of me for i was talking in little plug here but talking to french open men's doubles champion austin krejcik a conversation you all can now <clears throat> excuse me here on the Cracked Interviews podcast, I compared the jostling of doubles partnerships as the closest thing we have in tennis to reality TV. He enjoyed that comparison. I thought you'd be proud of me for using it. I feel like that's DK I'm glad, I'm glad he enjoyed it. Newfound respect for Austin Krejcik. Anyone, <laughs> any man, any man or woman who, or any they them who could appreciate a, a good reality show reference is in my book. Good. A plus. Yeah, he's now on the radar. He's on Austin. You're now on David Kane's radar as well. So thank you for enjoying. Congratulations, felicitations, Yeah, maybe the best thing to come out of your Grand Slam title, my friend. Um, with all that said, obviously this will be our final bow on the 2023 French Open. If you missed out on anything, you can catch up with the Mini Break podcast, or you can go to tennis.com and read everything David Kane wrote throughout his time in Paris. DK, you got a specific article, non Cicidosa related, that you would want to plug from your time there. I mean, that was a very witty article, I have to say. I mean, I put it out and was I feared for my life because I thought, oh, my God, first of all, am I wildly speculating about this relationship? And two, are they going to be mad at me? Am I going to get a ma- an angry text from Pelopidosa? But given the subsequent you know, flurry of publicity, surely no, no, no press is bad press. But I actually wrote some pretty good longer form articles of real substance during Roland Garros, shocker, um, one of which was about the Daria Kasakina Natalia Zabiako YouTube channel, which is... I don't know what we're doing over at TC. We should really just be absorbing that content and just make rebrand up my tennis life. Na- Na- Natasha and Dasha are really just nailing it. They they released about a 51-minute uh, epic about their time at Roland Garros. I can only imagine the next time uh, Dasha goes really deep at a slam, it's going to be like a three-parter. We're going to get a three-part reunion after the uh, hmm. after the after after that vlog. And then also I did a thing on um, Sloane Stevens and her work as player counsel slash player really was in fine form, both on and off the court. Really great to see Sloane in that uh, state of mind. Um, and other, otherwise, just a lot of just trying to drink from a fire hose. Just a lot of stuff happened in that that week and a half that I was in uh, Roland Garros Plus because I got there. I mean, I basically I'm a French resident. I am Parisian. My name is Pierre. I've been here for three and a half weeks. I am I am of the people. I am l'ami du peuple, if you will. Uh, yeah. It is. I am ready to talk all things French Open because I have just been completely immersed in it. And also Nutella. I've been very immersed in Nutella, but mainly mainly tennis. Well, since you shared that last detail, I'll share one more insight, and then we can get rocking and rolling. The reason this podcast – I mean, you're going to get it when you were going to get it anyways, but we were scheduled to start at 5 p.m. We started roughly 5.10, which, by the way – I'm late to more shows than anyone in the business by four to six. I really nailed that minutes. 10 minutes, though. Yeah. I said 10 minutes. <laughs> yeah, you were exactly ready at 510. And by the way, not a big deal at all. But I think listeners will enjoy knowing why was DK late for his run for, uh, prior to getting to today's show. He had to go pick up a crepe. And I th- I told him that's the best possible excuse uh, or reason. I think I said reason, not excuse, because that's just great reasoning. It's the reason for the season. I mean, listen, I'm up in Montclair <laughs> right now, which is 
It couldn't be farther from the crepery, the uh, emporte crepery that I went to pick up from right. in the, by the bestie. I went clear across Paris to pick it up, and I've made numerous <laughs> faults on the, the metro, which I don't normally make. I've like kind of do- dozed off, uh, dazed out on one of the stops, and then had to take the 13 to the 8 to the 1. It's just It was a big old mess, but it was a delicious crepe, and I, <laughs> I, I, I really felt proud of myself that I felt the most French of the very clearly American tourists that were also online with me. I was like, no, no, there'd be no English coming out of my mouth. I'm, I am a French person. Again, I'm Pierre. Je m'appelle Pierre and c'est tout. <laughs> yeah, no, that, yes, I agree to all of it. Well said. Um, and with that in mind, again, you can catch up on it all on tennis.com, all of DK's explorations into the world of the 2023 French Open. Of course, a shout out to him for joining us here. It was what you're giving me a face. No, no. I, I just I figured you're going into the spawn con. So oh. <laughs> <laughs> Crack Rackets yeah. brought to you by David Kane and also there the following is. ad break. He's he's back. Oh, it's good to have you. Yes, of course. A shout out. I will I'm say I'm always at my best, baby. <laughs> yeah, all right, we'll do one more then quick tangent. Shout out to my dear friend Jamie McDonald, longtime contributor here at Cracked Rackets, who got married this past weekend. I was in Kansas City at his wedding. Here's the thing. I talk to Jamie at least once a week on the phone. Like we we chat. We're but our relationship is very much a byproduct of the Zoom era. So like this was the third time in our lives we had ever met in person. And it was at his wedding. And I'm just like it's it's the Classic. first time in my life, like, God, this past three years, what a run of humanity. Like you just gotta love it. Um anyways, I look forward to our next encounter in person because it'll be like Arth. i feel like someone's gonna owe me dinner by the end yeah (laughs) or i mean looking at the state of our teams maybe right back at you my friend um yeah all of that said it is time for the ad read (laughs) shout out to our dear friends at tennis point tennis-point.com promo code acr15 for all the latest and greatest equipment at the best prices as well tennis-point.com Promo code is CR15. All right, let's talk some tennis here on today's show. We'll talk 2023 French Open singles finals. We have to start on the men's side because history was made. Novak Djokovic wins title number 23. Now, this was a detail I highlighted throughout the course of the second week. The fact that he did it in Rafa's house is just the most Novak Djokovician thing in the in his story that of course it just feels like it had to be part of the narrative that this is where he comes and wins slam number 23 and now all the pictures associated with this moment are going to be of Novak at the French Open instead of a moment we recognize as Rafa at the French Open the reason I go through that explanation is because DK is making a face at me god again it's it's just good to have you back obviously we can get into the history we can get into the numbers you look at the storyline from the match credit to Casper Ruud I really thought he played well. I know it was a straight set match. Ultimately, Djokovic threw in a 7-6-6-3-7-5 win, but Casper goes up an early break 4-2. He didn't play bad tennis in getting broken back 4-3-4. Yes, there's obviously the exchange of overheads. Djokovic misses one early in the game. Rude misses his overhead on break point, but the physicality of that point Casper's willingness to move forward early in that match and try to, you know, again, play on his terms. The breaker was what it was, but I didn't at, – at no point did I feel like Casper Rude was overwhelmed in this match. In the way, he was just 
overwhelmed against Rafa last year. And I know structurally there are things Novak Djokovic, uh, excuse me, Rafa can do as a lefty heavy topspin into the backhand of Rude that just are miserable from a matchup perspective for Rude. But man, Djokovic's ability to drive the ball into the backhand corner, it wasn't like he wasn't relentless in doing so. I know it was a straight set win. I know we're going to talk about the Novak side of things and again, the history he's made, but as the number one in or as the wise people say, foremost Casper Ruud scholar in the tennis industry, DK, you were at the final. What'd you think of the quality of this match? Bit of a curveball, because the reason why I was making a face was because you seem to think that we are all wrapped up and done about this this greatest of all time debate. That there will be no comeback from Rafael Nadal, and there will be no, I guess, seance for Roger Federer to come back and win another four <laughs> slams, but. I mean, right now it is only 23 to 22. I mean, I would imagine it's very possible Novak will extend that lead even greater by the end of the season uh, with Wimbledon coming up. But um, given where Nadal was just a year ago, it felt, you know, 22 didn't even feel like the end for Rafa. So it's interesting to hear that this was a very definitive moment for you. This is going to be the moment that Novak took the lead and never gave it up. That we'll be having these, we'll we'll be remembering these pictures specifically. Well, do you want to start there then? Because, yeah, I think we should. Okay. Yeah. It part of it is Rafa related, who's obviously undergone surgery, who's hoping to work his way back, and obviously plans to continue to his career and hopes to go out on his terms. Here's the thing: I know we've seen Rafa come back from injury after injury throughout the course of his career. He's not 24 anymore. He's not 27 anymore. Hell, he's not even 33 anymore. He's, you know, 36, 37. He's in his early old. hundreds. Yeah, and these guys are just so physical now and particularly hardcore. You, you know, you mentioned it. Who on tour has proven they are even within a set of Novak Djokovic in terms of quality of tennis capable of, in terms of pedigree on grass courts? Absolutely no one. And so now... You know, again, yes, it's a presumption that Novak wins 24 at Wimbledon, but he's the overwhelming favorite going into Wimbledon. And again, I want to have the calendar slam discussion with you as it relates to Novak later on in this show, because now it's red alert. Like this is always the hump. And with his track record at Wimbledon, with the fact that guys like Alcaraz and Sinner and, you know, even to some extent, guys like Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, they've still all played around 50 or fewer matches on grass courts in their career. And again, the last two times we've had Wimbledon, Novak Djokovic has won the event. And with all due respect to, I know Berrettini won a set. And, you know, again, to me, last year's final was never in doubt for Novak against Kyrgios as well as Nick was playing throughout the course of the event. I, I, I just... If he gets a two-slam lead on Rafa, there's just not enough French Opens left for Nadal, who is who is now much more open about saying, yeah, like, I can see the finish line. I'm really just hoping to go out on my terms. I think the rest of the field has gotten better, and yet Novak has proven through these first two slams, as I discussed last week, that it's just – it's such a mental hurdle to have to beat Djokovic in this three out of five set format. And the tennis he is still capable of playing, not just the physicality he displays at this age, because obviously that's the historic thing. That's what everyone sees. But how well, I I was talking about this with my older brother who said, you should use that on the pod. And I was like, I have used that on the pod. You just don't listen. Um, 
shout out Eric, whom DK's a fan of, for what it's worth. We've Big discussed fan. This. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've discussed this before. Um, it's just, you know, version one of Novak, right? From 08 to 2010, he's this fun, young talent who clearly can do a lot of things well. The backhand was special. He wins that first Australian Open title, but there are some physical issues, some cramps, some double faults, all these different things. And yet you knew he was going to be promising, right? Djokovic 1.0. Djokovic 2.0 was that 2011 through 2013 stretch where just physically, I mean, come on. Like, go watch the 2011, 2012 Australian Opens, what he was capable of doing. And that physicality is still, I think, the highest degree of physicality we've ever seen in this sport. We saw Murray match it for a couple of years, but his body broke. Novak Djokovic's never did, and it speaks to his quality. That's 2.0. You know, now I think we're at 3.0 or maybe even 4.0 as it's been a slower progression where he got more aggressive but could still be physical. Now I just – he hits his spots so well on the serve, DK. And whether it was – I know he lost the second set, but I think it was 4-5 or 3-5, love 40, whatever it was in that second set against Alcaraz when he dug his way out of that hole and it just felt like every love 30 deficit he faced against Casper Ruud – Serve wide, first approach to the open court, move in, spot finished. You know, you look at the hold percentage. It's higher right now through tw- at 2020, uh, in 2023, 87.1 than it is for his career average, 86. And it's better than it was in the early 2010s range. It's not serve bot tennis, but it's such efficient plus one tennis. And it's just, again, he is still playing at number one level in the world. And I know Rafa was there a year ago today, but it's just been a year of constant injuries and surgery where you put that on top of everything else he's faced uh, in his career. Yes, I just think the totality of things for Rafa is is overdone uh, or it has reached its limit. And I think Novak is still playing well enough where he's the favorite at all of the slams. And this level just is sustainable for him because he's found way – he's just so efficient in managing matches now that, yes, I think the slam race – now, greatest of all time in slam race are different discussions. But I think the slam race, David Kane, is over, I, at least as it pertains to the men's singles side for now. I don't think Nadal nor Federer, obviously – will ever be catching Novak Djokovic. You don't know that. (laughs) (laughs) I was kidding. Kidding, everybody. It's a a funny No, and by the way, that was an extended rant, so I do want to hear your full thoughts. I know. My my yes or no question turned into 2008 to 2010 real back. I was like, oh, no. (laughs) no. Here here it comes. No. um, So, listen, I mean, it's just why I asked the question is because, again, where we were a year ago with, with both Rafa and Novak, I mean, Novak wasn't even allowed to enter one of the Grand Slams last year, and and Rafa seemed just in pole position. I mean, he was pretty close to winning the first three Slams himself only a year ago, and I feel like we have, although as final and definite as Rafa has uh, conveyed his current situation, he's also made it seem pretty final and definite before, and I maybe it's just the person in me that has seen this all happen before makes me think that, you know, yes, maybe he thinks this is the end of his career, but maybe, you know, he has a great surgery, comes back feeling great and wins another slam. And maybe he's all of a sudden, you know, reignited. But I think it is a huge opportunity for Djokovic to just build up a huge lead because historically he has done 
pretty great at three out of the four slams, certainly two out of the four slams with Australian Open Wimbledon being his most successful outings. And to have an extra French Open, Roland Garros, I'm sorry, plus an opportunity to compete for the U.S. Open where he's defending no points. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of you know, motivation to come back, especially after how things ended for him in 2021 uh, with the crowd really embracing him. I think it's also going to be interesting. Again, you bring up the slam race versus the greatest of all time debate. As much as Novak has absolutely, numerically speaking, locked up pretty much all the records and stats that matter at this point, it will be funny (laughs) to me, as someone who has no stake in this, to see how certain writers and historians become less focused all of a sudden about stats, how it will suddenly be about grace and elegance and grit and tenacity, and maybe less about the hard numbers because it may not fit certain narratives. But with that said, I do think that if Novak ends his career with seven plus more majors than Rafa and even more so than Roger, it's going to be harder to make that kind of argument because I think it was a little different when you were talking about Laver and Connors and all the guys from the seven, McEnroe, like everyone kind of all had around, you know, five to 10 slams. Like it was kind of hard to really differentiate. But if you're talking about someone with 30 versus 22, it's going to feel like a tougher argument to make. And to your point, you know, Novak has done a phenomenal job of peaking at the slams, which is really the name of the game at this point. I mean, he was not looking phenomenal during this clay swing and yet managed to just lock into gear, you know, had a solid draw and didn't really waste any major energy, you know, had an opponent who was probably, who certainly has played maybe, I don't know, he played really great at the U S open. So, I mean, it's hard for me to say whether it was this final or, uh, the U.S. Open final where Rude played his best tennis, although maybe he played consistently better here, but got closer at the U.S. Open. Maybe we'll make that distinction. So with that, all that said, it is just wild to hear that there's perhaps an end to this Grand Slam debate after it being, you know, the biggest deal for what, the last five years? It's, it feels like the end of an era. It is, it's Grand Slam debate 2.0 <laughs> if we yeah. Grand Slam debate 1.0 has finally come to a close. But, no. I, you know, I think... It's all up to Novak now to kind of just run the table. And he there's not a lot of people who can really stop him right now. No, it, it's remarkable to see because you look in tennis history and obviously how could you not after we have a moment like this in uh, the sports history, there are eight players on the men's side who have won double-digit slam titles. Eight total. You throw, you know, you could divide Novak's career into everything he accomplished from 18 to 29 and everything he's accomplished from 30 onwards, and he would be on that list twice. He won 12 slam singles titles from 18 to 29. He's won 11 now since turning 30. You said it earlier. You want to throw in weeks at number one into the mix. You want to throw in Masters success. You want to throw in the fact that he's the only guy in history to win over 80% of the matches he's played at every single major. It's just like, yeah, statistically, all the records belong to Novak. Now, again, we joke about it here. I think the greatest of all time discussion, how it's framed, it it has to be opinion-based, so the way we have fun with it is, well, who's still in the race for that conversation? And certainly, you can make statistical and arbitrary arguments for Roger Federer. I do think, unequivocally, the single most dominant thing I have ever seen in sport is Rafael Nadal at the French Open. And that, can, and that narrative and his success will never be erased. That doesn't mean, again, if you're asking me, Alex, statistically, who had the best career in men's tennis— 
the answer is Novak Djokovic right now, and I don't know if he's going to get to 30 slams because I do think the gap is narrowing, but he just has never gotten injured in the way that Rafa has. And it's just, you know, again, I've, I've got statistics for you since we're going all in right now. No, in this let's, COVID let's era, DK, the, can we hold 61, up on this? well, it's one statistic. It's just okay, one. Okay, okay. Just one. <laughs> since <laughs> August like 2020, August 2020, which let's be clear, he was 33 in August 20. Just since then, he's 61 and four at the slams. I mean, like, what are we doing here? You know, 61 and four over a three-year stretch. He's won six slams during that run, eight different finals. Like, it's ridiculous. I don't know. I mean, you 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 don't want to draw the line at 30 slams, but I mean, it's like you said, Novak has been really great at staying healthy, and it made me wonder. It makes me wonder a little bit. You know, Novak potentially really has the opportunity to end his career on his own terms. And when will he want to stop? If it is, a, I think once it's clear that Rafa is no longer playing, that means there is no immediate threat. And I think there's no long-term threat to his legacy. Will he be content to stop with say 25, 26, 27 and not go for 30 because Rafa's done. Roger's done. My records are safe. Does he want to just keep pushing and pushing and pushing? I mean, like we saw Serena kind of run into that issue late in her career where she was certainly looking phenomenal when she hit, you know, 22 and 23. And then to push for more, she really ran up against a wall and, and, and kind of left in a way that wouldn't be as triumphant had she, you know, shut the door at at, at 23 when she won the, the 2017 Open. But when you're playing that well at the time, you feel like I could keep playing forever. I feel great. You know, there's no voice in your head telling you to stop because this is all you've ever been trained to do and you're doing it as best as you've ever done it. So I wonder, I mean, cause it's, I mean, I know he made a, he made a comment at one point, maybe like, Oh, Rafa and I will maybe leave the sport together. And I thought, well, that's, that's a little funny. I mean, like, I'm sure if like that would not happen if there were tied or Rafa was, you know, ahead. I mean, I, I'm certainly, I would say the same for Rafa. I think if Rafa made that kind of comment and was, behind Djokovic I would take that with a grain of salt as well but um yeah it's or it's really heady days over in time I mean this this golden era is really coming to quite a conclusion regardless of how it ends it's going to end with some ridiculous number with some yeah. ridiculous stats and a lot of narrative that people are going to be able to spin there's a lot of text that we've been given over the last three decades I mean the thought of like just going back to 2008 going back to 2003 for Federer this has been a golden age and uh the next chapter also is not per, per, potentially as ready as I would hope for them to be to to really turn the page or yank well, the book away. I don't know. I don't know how to end this metaphor. Well, no, this is where we can go full circle here because I've got the ending for you. I'll do some editing. Um, you know, again, the athletes I compare to. You talk about the killer instinct, the fact that he is just able to turn things on when he needs him down for two in that second set or, you know, again, in that second set against Hatchinov, down a set as – or down 4-2, excuse me, in the first against Rude, down in the second set against Hatchinov where he just, you know, again, locks in and finds that level where he's losing maybe one point a service game for a, a set and a half stretch and he's able to separate from there. You know, that's the Michael Jordan killer instinct so many talk about. Now, physically, the only comparison I can think of is – obviously Serena Williams or LeBron James, just two players, three players who just when they're on the court, they're able, they are the best athlete on the court. Their best is just always better 
than everyone else's best. And again, the fluidity we saw against Rude, how well Novak Djokovic hit his stretch forehand throughout the course of this French Open. It's something I harped on throughout the course of uh, our coverage on the mini break is you look towards this final, Djokovic uh, able to knock off, I think it was what, throughout the course of the match, 52 winners against just 32 unforced errors. You look at the 0-4 to four shot rallies, Djokovic is plus 31 against Rude in that stretch and gets back to, again, you know, again, the third athlete I'd per- turn to is Tom Brady as well, where it's just the the efficiency. He gets to the, the his ability to execute the plus ones. He's the only guy right now on the ATP Tour in 2023, top 10 in both hold and break percentage. He took Casper's best shot, and this is where we're full circle because you just said you don't think the next generation's ready. Alcaraz cramped. We can talk about that, I suppose, in a second if you'd like, but I don't like I don't fret about this one result for Carlos Alcaraz. I think it's so valuable for him to get this look at Djokovic in a slam and so beneficial for his career moving forward. He's already won a slam. I'm affording him the benefit of the doubt. I also think Kasper Ruud played a really good match, which does take us full circle to what we started with here. I don't think Kasper played poorly. It's just the instance we're still, and this gets full, full circle. It's crazy to say this, but at 36 years old, it's just as simple as Djokovic's best is still better than everyone else's. I mean, the question is whether that should really be the case. And that's certainly true. I don't know if that's fair or if, he's the best player ever. Yeah. Like maybe it is fair. I guess, but I mean, I don't know. You want what one did you craves. Well, well, here's why it is it fair or not? Was the level good? Like, how do you think Casper played in the final? I think he played as well as he probably could. I mean, listen, I tweeted this during the final, which is like, it feels unfair to have really any expectations of Casper Root in this final, given how terribly he played all year, given the fact that he's up against, to your point right now, statistically the greatest player to ever play the game, who he does not have a good record against. It's not like, you know, an Andy Murray up against a Roger Federer, who, you know, yes, Federer was always ahead of Murray, but Murray was able to really take it to Roger and challenge him and all the other various examples you can come up with. And yet life's not fair, you know, because he had a four, one, I should say four. Well, I checked the score at four all and I said, Oh, four all, that's not so bad. And then I realized that he'd been up four, one. I said, Oh, that's four, one, but just one break <laughs> for what it's worth. Yeah. But you know, it's Casper could really, what he's playing really well, he could serve pretty phenomenal. Or I should say pretty great, not phenomenal. It's like a crazy. Um, and then having love 30 at 5-4, and then when he didn't take advantage of it, when we were heading into the tie break, you feel like that's that's some bad news. Like you want you want to see you want to see this guy take it to you. It, you felt like he had to win that first set. And once he didn't win the first set, you know, credit to him to not totally lose the plot. And you know, he it went down a very quick 3-0 in the in the second. You feel like, oh, you know, pulled it back, played a you know, remark, you know, a respectable second set, a better third. <laughs> Too bad top at five out of seven, I guess, if you're Casper Rude, maybe he'd he would have gotten a better shot that way. But I mean, listen, Casper had had a bad year. I mean, this is someone who we fully expected to drop out of the top 10, to not defend any of these points, you know, to take up early, you know, lost to Nico Jari the week before in Geneva, as, as well as played in Rome. You feel like oh, it was a chunky loss to Holger Runa, then loses to Nico Jari in Geneva. And yet, you know, just plays his way into form and was talking about how he felt, you know, 
physically strong, was looking forward to the best of five. And I even asked him, I said, that's not something I think you would have felt like a month ago. Like you were like talking physically that things were not great. And he was like, yeah, I feel like, I feel like I've stabilized, you know, I thought the training block that I took in February would really reset me. It didn't. It feels like a pretty definitive case against the off-season EXO, certainly the way that he conducted himself during the off-season EXO format, doing all those South South American EXOs. Maybe there's still a case to be made about the Middle East and the value, maybe getting some matches in December, but to do what he did and then say, oh, I'll, you know, do my preseason after the Australian Open. It was like, girl, <laughs> mistake. And I think he finally like figured that one out. I mean, I, it's hard to say where we go right now for Casper because we're heading onto the grass swing, which we're, if things are looking up for Novak, things could not be looking more down for Casper base. Just surface wise, he does not have a game right now for grass. And I I don't project that in his preseason or in any of his offseason exos, he learned how to play grass court tennis. I think that's probably a few years away for him. But um, it's just brutal when a straight set loss to someone who is 12 years older than you was not maybe physically at his best to start the match, was maybe a little bit slow and maybe not feeling 100 percent, you know, to not take advantage. It's it's brutal. And to talk about Carlos Alcaraz, it's you wonder what the value would have been in a match against Novak sooner than the French Open semifinals, because you would attribute the cramps perhaps to nerves and some, you know, extra adrenaline that kicked in and kind of maybe just put him totally off the boil physically. And maybe just the weight of getting that match against Novak just maybe proved a little too much. I mean, it is, it's iconic recency bias because he plays one bad match against Novak. It's like, Carlos who? I mean, he was like the talk of the tennis. Which is why I'm like, I'm so dismissive of that storyline as well. I agree. Because I'm just like, it was one match, by the way, in a semifinal where, by the way, he had cruised to that semifinal through everyone. Like, Carlos Alcaraz is going to be just fine, folks. This was one match, albeit not the result we were hoping for, particularly after the back and forth that was those first two sets. But, yeah, sorry, certainly I didn't the score. I mean, it was a, yeah, it was just a brutal finish. And I yeah. think we were all fully expecting a five-set slugfest. And yeah. then when we didn't get it and Carlos came out of it looking physically weaker and mentally weaker, perhaps, like, it became a big deal. But he's certainly the heir apparent, you know, there's really no one who's even close to that kind of form mm-hmm. that the that the big three have been able to demonstrate. But, you know, we're impatient people. We wanted to see it, you know, in Paris. But all all which to say for Ruda, Casper, Casper Ruda, <laughs> Olga Ruda and Casper Ruda, I was heartened by the fact that he made the final, that he played as well as he did in the final. And you will hope that he's able to carry some momentum onto the hard courts where he certainly has a lot of points to defend. Um, and, you know, Someone who was not, we didn't pay a lot of attention to him, played really great, and is now, you know, he's made three slam finals, more than Tsitsipas, more than Zverev, you know, more than a lot of the other guys that we would have assumed would be in this position, has not done it, you know, and Mm -hmm. slow and steady may continue to win the race for Casper, that's for sure. No, perfectly put, and we'll move on to the women's singles final in a second. But yeah, just, you know, again, you look statistically now for each of these guys, for Djokovic, 27-4 and this year, back to the world number one ranking. He's won both slams. I mean, I guess we do have to do this quickly. Gold uh, calendar slam, excuse me. I think it's so real. I, I just I think he's the prohibitive favorite going into Wimbledon, particularly just given the lack of a pedigree for any of these guys on grass courts. The fact that, yeah, Medvedev's been really good on grass courts, but he hasn't played Wimbledon in, in over a year. And, you know, again, I need to see someone beat Djokovic three out of the five before I can even believe it. 
Djokovic has won back-to-back Wimbledon titles. He gets to the U.S. Open this time. There's no Olympics to add additional wear and tear to his body. He'll be able to choose. Maybe I play one of Canada, Cincinnati. Maybe I throw in one other event as well. I think the chase is, again, as real as it has ever been. This is always the hump. It's crazy to say this is the third time in Djokovic's career he has done this, but he's done it again. How real is that chase for you? Well, first of all, what I will say is I think if he wins a calendar year Grand Slam this year or any other year, because <laughs> we can't take them off the ta- any of them off the table right now, sure. that would really be a big, probably the biggest, the most definitive. And I'm sure for a lot of people who are fans of him, who really love him, that that's that he's already proven his his case. Yeah. But I think for the people writing the stories about tennis, a calendar year Grand Slam is going to be very hard to ignore. I mean, there are a lot of a lot of stats where we could say, oh, this, that. But like a calendar year Grand Slam is really going to reverberate in the tennis world. The people who remember the Rod Labors and the Steffi Grafs, like that's going to be a big deal for them. Yeah. This is the third time that he has won Australian Open and French Open back to back. The first time he did it, I believe he lost in the third round to Sam Query. Is that right? The second round to Sam Query? Something like that. Sure. And then the second time, obviously, he won it and then came into yeah. the US Open having won the first three. You know... It's it is hard to do something that someone hasn't done in a lot of years who hasn't that hasn't been done since before you were born. So he is certainly the most capable of doing it of anyone. Um, There's just a lot to consider. I would argue I would agree and argue that, yes, the Olympics really if he had any hope of doing it in 2021, the Olympics really killed that hope because it was just a, such an emotional summer and then to come into the final against you know Medvedev who was playing so well and just had no physically nothing left yeah does he have a better shot this year I mean he's he's two years older <laughs> I could say yeah. but otherwise you know and maybe there are better hardcore players right now than maybe there were even two years ago if we're talking about Alcaraz we're talking about Medvedev maybe that was not the case two years ago but he still also has to make it to Wimbledon. I mean, psychologically, to be going to Wimbledon, having won the last two, and I'm sure he and his team are thinking about it or, or meditating about it or, you know, astral projecting about hmm. winning Wimbledon and winning the winning the US Open. So we will see how that all works out. You know, he certainly has a big advantage to come into the US Open with three, but he's got to win the third first. You know, it's just hard to project all the way out to, to New York when he still has to do it at Wimbledon. He certainly teed up to do it, but he still has to do it. Where are next year's Summer Olympics? Why they're in Gay Paris, of course. That is going to – I mean, come on Yansur. That is going to be the fascinating event for Novak Djokovic because that and the – you know, again, if he wins the calendar slam, you're right. If he gets the golden slam as well and throws the gold medal in the mix, I just like – I don't even know how you could make an I mean, argument listen, against if, it at that point. If I were Novak Djokovic, I would consider not playing in Olympics again. <laughs> I feel like the last couple have not gone his way. It is the one thing he wants more than anything. I think yeah. he wants it more. I think it, it is currently harder for him to win an Olympic gold than it is to win a calendar year Grand Slam. He's proven wow. he can win all four Grand Slams in one year. He has not proven he can win a gold medal at the Olympics. And it is the thing that he wants so, 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 so much. And when someone wants something that badly, you hope that they get it. But – it has gone so wrong for him at the Olympics that given everything else that's on the table, maybe if he feels like he's coming to the Olympics having won another, what, two or three more slams and is up by that much on Nadal and, and Rafa, uh, Nadal and Roger. And if Rafa's like, you know, ready to make the Olympics last events, maybe he says, maybe there'll finally be the pressure off of him to play his best at the Olympics. But 
I don't know. I mean, it's just, it's such, it has been such a bugbear for him over the years that emotionally speaking, I, how do you go back to that kind of just uh, PTSD chamber? I, I'm looking forward to that because I think that is the last thing he would want. And again, this is a guy. I mean, to be clear, he's gonna go. I'm yeah, just saying. No, he's me. accomplished all. Of, yeah. No, look, he's. Accomplished I'd be eating all crepes in Paris. I would not be yeah, playing Olympics. Exactly. No, he's accomplished all the things he wants. He's the best player this year. Number one in the points race. Number one in the world rankings. Twenty-seven and four overall in the year. Again, straight set victory. He dropped two sets on his way to the Roland Garros title. Twenty-three in his career. For Kasparud, just for what it's worth, you look now, he's 141 in 59 since August of 2020, 73 in 34 since the start of last season. You mentioned the slow start to this year, but now 22 and 12 overall. And perhaps most importantly, you mentioned the points he has to defend. How about the points he just protected in reaching another French Open final? Stays at number four in the rankings. You mentioned it, a third slam final in his career. I'm going to take the L. Kasparud, like... You just have to respect the track record. This is a guy who is not going anywhere. And yes, you can pin him in the backhand corner and create opportunities for yourself. But you got to be really good to take advantage of those opportunities. And, you know, whether it was how he destroyed Zverev in the semifinals, how he managed that match when Runa was playing so poorly in those first two sets, he didn't overextend. He let Runa beat himself. Played mature tennis. Like, Casper was really good. And so, you know, again, yes, it was another disappointment in a slam final, but I think it was absolutely a step in the right direction. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. With that said, we'll get to some of other men's single storylines, I suppose, as we continue our show here. But let's move over now to the women's side of things because obviously – you know, coming into the tournament, Iga Swiatek, two-time Roland Garros champion. You know, we talk about matches she lost sets at Roland Garros, notably, let alone matches that she has lost uh, at this event. And you know, for Iga, she hadn't lost a set coming into this women's singles final uh, this year against Karolina Mukova. Mukova, of course, knocking off Sabalenka from five-two down in the third set. You know, first slam final of her career, but what a run it had been to get to the final. The way things started out, it looked like it was going to be just another Iga easy day at the office. Iga, 6-2-3 love up. It's not that she was cruising. It just felt like as well as Mukova was attacking, she couldn't get a ball by Sviantek. Every approach shot just hung up a little too long, and Sviantek was able to find the passes. Sviantek was able to dictate with her backhand, whether it be down the line or cross court. All of that said, you know, again, from 6-2-3 love up, it became a different match. And credit to Karolina Mukova, even when the attacking wasn't working in the first set, she stayed the course well, it finally did start to generate some errors from Iga Sviantek. All of a sudden, you know, Mukova's at 5-all in the second set. She takes that second set 7-5. She goes up in early break in the third set and has a look to serve for the match in that third set as well. 
That said, in the end, Iga Swiatek 6-2, That's the narrative of the match, DK. What's your biggest storyline, biggest takeaway from the final from Iga Slam title number four? I'd like to be able to go back to a house, and I don't want the <laughs> Iga fans to burn it down while I'm while I'm not there. But I will say that my me my big takeaway is that I am disappointed that I didn't get an Iga Arena final. I mean, we were so close, and I know that Mukova played some phenomenal tennis in both in that semifinal and in the final. But I really wanted to see that match, so it is hard for me to analyze this final completely because I just feel like yeah. it always felt like Iga was going to win. She had the upper hand. She's so much more experienced. She is just, it was came in just sharp as sharp as nails. Got like a total sharp as sharp as attack, tough as nails. Sharp as, yeah. That's some that's that's some real housewives uh misappropriating <laughs> of uh of analogies for you. But I she was just you know, had probably, you know, the biggest test that she's ever gotten at a Grand Slam final, I'll give her credit for that. And that, you know, was able to steal her way through it, didn't panic, didn't freak out, was able to get the break back both times, you know, wins the match in the third. Just, you know, Iga is the best player, certainly on clay. And now she has an opportunity to prove, again, that she's the best player on hard courts. Uh, a different challenge, but, you know... Given the rate at which she is stacking up Grand Slams, you know, Rafa was not the best player on grass or hard for a couple of years. You know, he won about five or six or seven French Opens by the time he was, you know, considered the best player or a really great player, uh, uh, a top one contender on grass, hard courts, all those things. So, I mean, Ike is still so young, is still so smart and has so much time to figure all that out. So. I mean, I know a lot of people really loved the final because it was, you know, all court tennis, a lot of, you know, brilliant shot making for both Mukova and, and Stravansek. But I really wanted to see the contrast of of Iga and Arena. It just felt like after we saw them in Stuttgart and Madrid, you know, this was going to be the match for all the beans. And so that was sort of my, unfortunately, my load, my bummer takeaway from the final was that we didn't get the match that I personally wanted. Uh, but, you know, Iga is, talk about the greatest of all time debate. She is. Racking them up, baby. Racking them up at a good clip. Like, that's that's what you got to do at this day and age. She is showing up primed. You know, was not always at her best at in Madrid, in Rome. Comes to Roland Garros, gets a good draw, and wastes absolutely no time. You know, one wonders if she had been a bit more distracted in her third or fourth round match. Would she have been more tired in the final? She is an expert at energy conservation. And that is something I always go back to when there is a lot of, like, you know, silly billy debates over best of five or best of three. Oh, the women want their match was so short it was a 59 minute match yeah that's called being efficient like that's a good thing like i hate when people are like that means they're good at doing their job like that's not they're not out there necessarily to entertain you primarily they're out there to do their job and Iga is so great at doing her job and is also pretty good at entertaining people so i think that's sort of the best of both worlds that you're going to get from her and, and obviously from mukova as well but yeah that's it was a great final certainly uh it's a, there was a back and forth of whether the, the Australian Open final or the French Open final was better. I personally prefer the Australian Open final just because it was so high quality and and no one expected it to be. And like, because it was just power tennis back to back from both Sabalinka and Rybakina. I think we kind of knew this was going to be a good final. It was. And obviously the way that it ended, you know, the, the double fault on match point. But I'm just rambling at this point. But anyway, fantastic job for Iga. She is phenomenal. She is all that 
she's, I guess I would say maybe 98% of what everyone thought she was last year. And is you know, on her way to rebuilding that 2%, you know, with a lot of opportunities on hard courts and grass. Well, I think it's twofold. I, I agree with a lot of what you said. And obviously for Iga, fourth title uh, at the majors, she's the youngest to get to four since Serena did it back in 02. And, you know, you look at all the stats and all the lists for the French Open right now. It's her, it's Everett, it's Graf, it's Sellis. Like, that's the list and Serena, you know, of players she is hanging out with this early in her career. I've said it before. I've said it. I'll say it again. She's not eliminated from the GOAT uh, race yet. Like, she is on pace. Not at all. The, yeah, at, at 22 years old, that's the craziest thing in the world because you're like, you know, again, she's 22. If I told you over under she's going to win four and a half more French Open titles, just French Open titles, you take the over, right? For sure. Yeah, yeah I mean, which she is prohibitively like the best player on clay by a lot, you know, or I would say by a really good amount, especially sure. slow clay. And just, you know, again, yeah, credit to Carolina Mukova who continued to attack. And you talk about the old all court tennis. There was a 30 minute stretch from, you know, three love up in the second set to two love down in the third, where Sviantek started to spray. And you look at the numbers from this match, 19 winners against 27 uh, unforced errors for Iga. I don't think she played that well. Like, I thought the slices, again, the fact that she constantly had to hit on the stretch, like the forehand started to betray Iga. And all the credit in the world belongs to Karolina Mukova, who... To your uh, uh, to again everyone's point the all court tennis the slicing the short angles her ability to get Iga stretched on the forehand wing Iga would go heavy forehand cross court Mukova's response was always I'm taking that forehand early I'm taking it on the rise I'm moving in behind it she hit that ball exceptionally and to hit 30 winners against 38 unforced errors it might sound like it's negative but it's against Iga. You got to take chances against Ika. Or as we saw in every other match, you're just losing. Like, look at Goff's first set versus the second. When she played aggressive, it was close. But even then, like, you just to sustain that level is so difficult against Ika because I've just never seen anyone in my life physically be what she is on these clay courts. And I sent this out as a tweet, and some people said, well, you should have seen Graf. And, you know, I remember seeing how good Enin was on these clay courts. She was exceptional. But it's the depth, it's the heaviness of the ball she hits, and it's the movement. I mean, she hits so well on the stretch. Obviously, she gets she hits her spots better and better on the serve as she's progressed in her career. But you feel like that's still the low-hanging fruit for improvement as well. And it's just, well, you add where she is already physically to where she already is with her skill set. She can do a little bit of everything on a slow court where you have to be able to do a little bit of everything. Again, what we learned this clay court season is that if Sabalenka has one of those days on serve and Iga's not at her 100% best, yeah, Arena could give her a run. We saw Rabakina, same deal. I know it got ended two all in the third, but yeah, that elite power tennis, Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club, shout out, it can always give anyone a run, but it has to be at its very best because if it's not, you're losing to Iga on a clay court. And that's just the storyline from – like as nervous as things got in that third set, I agree with you. I never had a doubt. I was like, yeah, but she'll find a way. And to Iga's credit, as always, she did. Yeah, that would have been a pretty cataclysmic moment for, for Shkonsek yeah. if she did not figure that out. But I didn't – that's moot because I yeah. thought that she – it's mootava. <laughs> I really thought that it was – 
always going to be for Ig. I mean, you have to even think that she was expecting to play a Sabalenka in the final. You could not have gotten a more different opponent yeah. than a Karolina Mukova, and that must have maybe played on her mind a little bit to know that she was going to play someone of such disparate experience to her in a Grand Slam final, and that maybe caused some of the late, you know, mid to late match tightness from her. Yeah, I mean, compare again, comparing it to the Australian Open final, there was a bit more streakiness that, for me personally, I mean, it was just consistent excellence from Sabalenka and Ribaki, but but. Either way, two really phenomenal Grand Slam finals to start the season for the women. And it gives you a little bit of everything. You want power tennis. You want all-court tennis. You want, you know, tenacity. You want grit. You want weight of shot. You want spin. You want slice. You got everything from those two matches. You could do it. You could put them on uh, TC Plus, do a double feature, and that's that's that you're set for the weekend, for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, this was – it was an important two weeks for Egan. She – answered every question that anyone could possibly have. So that's the soundbite, guys, when you tweet about this this podcast episode. She's great, and I love it. Yeah. No, I mean, again, I said the over-under four-and-a-half French Open titles, and again, that doesn't include the U.S. Open. That doesn't include the Australian Open. That doesn't include Wimbledon, where, let's be clear, she still played fewer than 50 pro grass court matches in her career, but she is a former junior Wimbledon singles champion. And I'm not saying, like, oh, that's going to translate immediately – but look, here's a hot take, and everyone stop driving if you're in the car and just brace yourself. Iga Sviantek's really good at tennis. And I'm just going to make a wager, David. Again, hot take here. She'll figure it out at Wimbledon. She'll find a way to be competitive on that surface at some point in her career. And we know how good she is at hardcore. She's one of, what, three women in the 21st century, maybe two. It's just her and Vika to win the Sunshine Swing in uh, Indian Wells, Miami, back-to-back. We've seen her make a U- uh, win a U.S. Open title, make Australian Open semifinals. Like We know the hardcore answers are there. We know the grass court answer is there. And we know she's going to win at least five French Opens in her career. Here's the thing. It's just, again, tennis has been going on more than a century now, but this the open era, right? We're around the 50-year mark, plus or minus a few years. Fewer than, what, 12 players on the women's side, I'll look up the exact number, have hit double-digit slams. Iga's a once-in-a-generation talent. Double digits is on the board. And it's just, again, don't take it for granted because especially after what we've seen for the past half decade and what it feels like might be coming on the men's side, you just don't get these once in a generation sure things. And it's not to put a burden or a pressure on Iga. It's just what you see. She is that much better than the rest of the field on this surface. I think that's the slogan for Iga Sviantek. Iga Sviantek, she'll figure it out. And I think... (laughs) I think Eagle likes a challenge. I think, yeah. you know, I don't think you're afraid of a challenge if you're coming to the U.S. Open using tennis balls that you openly don't like and then you win that slam. I, I mean, I, I can't remember the last time someone has complained or been that disenchanted with the conditions one way or another and then goes on to win fairly emphatically. You know, it was never a question. There was never a match that was like, oh, no, the balls. You know, it was just always... It was never in doubt for much of that U.S. Open. And so I think when you've already proven that, you know, you even go back to to Arena Sabalenka, you know, when you overcome a certain level of adversity, you just feel like I could do anything. You know, whether Mm -hmm. it's Sabalenka and her serve, Iga and the balls at the U.S. Open, you just feel like I overcame a tremendous mental hurdle. The rest is gravy. And so absolutely, I think she'll figure out grass. I think she'll figure, you know, continue to be a top three player on hard courts and, you know, top two given 
depending on where Rabakin and Sabalenka are, I think she will be in that conversation. Um, and it sets up for a very intriguing summer swing because Arena Sabalenka was very close to that number one ranking. And, and Iga has defended about as many points as she possibly could have over this, uh, the last six months, you know, obviously didn't play Miami, but, you know, picked up Madrid points, you know, and we'll have an opportunity to, to gain points at, at Wimbledon. And uh, there's some opportunities for her in the summer, but, you know, as close as Sabalink is to the number one ranking, Ika has not given it to her by any stretch of the imagination. And she was coming in, you know, with a tremendous uh, advantage to start the year. Yeah, look, seven women overall, five in the open era. You've got Court, Serena, Graf, Helen Willis-Moody, who just gets erased too often from this conversation, Everett, Navratilova, Billie Jean King. That's the list of double-digit women's single slam winners in women's tennis history. I'm not saying Iga's more likely to get there or not than not because so much can happen, but the path to double digits is there. And again, that's once in a generation. Seven women have done it, and it speaks to – the talent she is, the athlete she is, she is. Um, I think my favorite thing was after her semifinal victory, you know, immediately afterwards she gets asked about getting to another final and what she does to stay focused and stay, you know, whatever, uh, relaxed off court. And she starts going into the books she's reading. And so John Wertheim asks a follow-up about one of the books and, you know, is again, oh, is that something you'd recommend? And, and she goes, well, I haven't finished that one yet, so I'm actually not ready to give my recommendation. And just, like, gives a full-throated, serious answer. And you're just like, how can you not like this human? Like, God, it's, it's just – it's adorable. Like, and again, it just – She's just good. She plays the role of front runner really well. There's just the discipline, the composure. Like I know things got a little shaky, but she never exploded. Like she stayed within herself. She righted the ship. Now again, I'm sure she appreciated the double fault gift on match point as well. But she's just the real. That's deal. That's going to be the soundbite that they're going to pull. Iga Shvantec enjoys double faults from her opponents. How could you say that about her? Yeah, How could enjoys. you? Enjoys. Oh, I, I, David Kane, know for a fact that Iga Shvantec does not appreciate double faults. Figurative. She wants the to win it the figurative uh, fair enjoy. and square way. Yeah, the figurative, not the literal enjoy. The figurative enjoy. Just because who doesn't like winning a fourth title? But yes, thank you, DK. Good editing. Um, <laughs> yeah, I mean. Look, I, I guess that's really all there is to be said about the Iga Shviantek side of things. Now, for Mukova, uh, I guess I guess one more statistic or run of statistics. Iga, the only player now top ten in both hold and break percentage. She's a ridiculous hundred two and fifteen DK, one oh two and fifteen since the start of last season. 147 and thirty three since August twenty twenty. Fifty three and eight at slams during that stretch of time. Four titles, 87% win percentage. Not eliminated from the GOAT discussion. Mukova side of things. She beats Sabalenka. She beats Pav. She beats Bagu. She beats Sakari. You know, three-set loss, and but had a serious shot to perhaps serve for the match. Again, 4-3. What was it? Love 40 there, I believe, in that third set game. She had looks. There's no doubt about it. She's up to number 16 in the rankings. That's a new career high. She's top 10 in the points race right now. She's sitting uh, currently at number five. How real does this run feel for someone who now you look at this season 25 and eight overall in the year? I mean, it depends on how healthy she stays. I mean, sure. I just feel like that's always been the question for Mukova. I feel like no one's ever questioned her talent. I mean, a lot of us at tennis.com predicted a big run for Mukova, including this guy. I don't know if I thought he was, hmm. she was going to make, I didn't. No, if we I, would have done the Dark Horse pod, 
we both would have had her on our list, right? Oh, yeah. It was such a yeah. clear, like, that first yeah. round against Sakari. It was like, bye. <laughs> bye, girl. Like, it was so clearly going to be a Mukova upset there. But I didn't – I mean, I and it's so funny because going back to our initial draw previews, it was like, wow, that third quarter is a mess. It's going to be someone totally random coming out of that quarter. And she ended up very nearly winning the whole damn thing. But I think for Mukova, it's about how healthy can she stay because this is someone who for, – who, for someone who plays – such a you know easy seamless game who doesn't have any major hitches in any of her technique who everyone loves to watch something about her and is also clearly seemingly very athletic like there's nothing about her you think oh there's there's a fitness issue like something about the way that she moves about the court and hits the ball is causing injuries obviously some of it is some bad luck some twisted ankles here and there but this is someone who was told that she may never be able to play professional tennis again so you kind of get a little pause of like, maybe let's not think that far to Wimbledon. Like, let's hope she makes it to Wimbledon, just given sort of the amount of bad luck that she's had over the years. But with that said, when she's healthy, clearly this is overdue. I mean, once she was back on court consistently, it felt like only a matter of time before she'd be back in the top 20 competing for Grand Slam quarter semis, finals. Maybe finals was a big, a bigger leap than I thought at this stage of the game, but, you know, really played she stayed with Sabalenka pretty much that entire match, even, you know, maybe between maybe a little bit of laps from three, two to five, two, but then was right back in it. And, you know, once uh, Sabalenka blinked, she was ready to reel off the points that she needed to win that match. I mean, the fact that it was really a testament to Sabalenka that she, that it was as close as it was for most of it because Mukova was playing so well for so much of that match. But um, yeah, she's, I hope that she's able to, or she's figured out ways to prevent injuries like that's the most important thing for her she's got to stay like where novak has been able to make a career off of being super healthy among other things <laughs> that'll be the sound bite. novak Djokovic has only been good because he's healthy he's a participation trophy no it's um i think <laughs> gotta be yeah now at this point i'm threat modeling while i'm analyzing yeah, like, now it's in my good. you're aggregating as you go we might as well we might as well just give them the arguments so that way it's not like you, you, they can't edit that out but yeah. um she's just got to stay healthy name of the game there's nothing about her nothing about her tennis where you think oh well she could improve this or that obviously maybe it could just be a bit stronger but you know she's not super tall and she's not super you know like no it it's it it feels andrescu-y right like just the athleticism the shot making the ability to be like i think she could do a little bit of anything in any given match on any given surface maybe less um improv-y than Andreescu, I feel like there's a bit maybe more intent to Mukova, which is a good thing. You know, I yeah. think that's probably part of the problem with an Andreescu, maybe even a little bit of a Jabor, someone who is so by the seat of their pants in terms of executing that they sure. don't have these reliable paths. This is a theory that I've unloaded for a while. That maybe, and maybe that's the same for Mukova too. Maybe it is a reason why she's been injured is that there isn't necessarily the, the go-to patterns, but you know, it worked here. So you hope that she's just able to kind of stay in a bubble you know, practices the right amount, doesn't have any bad luck during matches because you don't you don't watch her play and think, oh, she's gonna. You know, when Andrea Pekovic played, it was like, yeah, that makes sense that your knees about to fall off because just things were so rigid and and brittle. And I think she would say the same thing. But um, it's yeah, for Mukova, great. You know, it was it's overdue. Someone who made the Australian Open semifinal two years ago, not beneath her to make a final. So not a, too far above her to make a final. Yeah. So hopefully we see more. Yeah. I- Perfectly put. I agree. I think the only question is health. I don't think this was a fluke at all. I think she's in the ball game now. The ranking is there. She's going to be at all the big events. 
it's going to be fascinating to see what she does because very few points to defend the remainder of this season. So top 10 oh. push very much in the cards for her. With that said, two singles finals in the books. Let's offer some final thoughts here because, again, as you alluded to, I'm glad you've had some theories that you're willing to share here because ultimately this is a theory therapy session and uh, a sounding board for DK's biggest theories and biggest takeaways from these events. Only so, a theory. With that in mind, let's talk winners and losers uh, before we wrap today's show as you look at the draw and just, you know, again, big picture from the two weeks in Paris. This is where you can get off some final thoughts. I think we have to start with Sabalenka, and then I'll let you go wherever you want to go. But here's my takeaway on why Sabalenka is actually a winner of this event and not one of the biggest disappointments because I agree with you. I was – praying we were going to get the final we were all hoping for Sabalenka versus Iga one versus two rematch of a fine you know a multiple clay court finals we saw this year and really the matchup of the season thus far to date as good as Rabakina has been that said my takeaway and you were on the ground so you can probably speak to it better than I could but I watched a lot of arena Sabalenka tennis over the last two weeks I don't think she played well in any of her matches and that that level got her to the semifinal. I actually think the glass half full take is like, look, this is just how good the floor is now. This is how when your when your ball goes in the court, you're gonna win points. And I know this is so, to some extent always been the case, but it did feel like in every match she was able to find ten to fifteen minute pockets where she really did zone in and find that best tennis to advance. Now, obviously, she blinked in the biggest moment, 5-2 up in the third uh, against Mukova. But I actually think, again, the take is glass half full. And it's like, look, if I'm Sabalenka's camp, I'm like, we didn't even play well in Paris, and we still made the semifinals. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot, obviously, to unpack with Arena Sabalenka. We'll start with the semifinal, which is that, yeah, I think she played not a great match the whole time. I think Mukova really outplayed her for most of it. The fact that it was as close as it was is sort of a testament to Sabalenka's just sheer grit and determination. Again, that the fact that her floor has really come up to quite an impressive level. I mean, I think that this is, you kept waiting for Sabalenka to blink on basically since she won the Australian Open. You know, historically, it is expected for there to be a lull. And especially for someone who was already as streaky as Sabalenka, you did not expect her to maintain this level for six straight months. This is, this is what it is. This is, you know, much like Iga, Arena Sabalenka will, will figure it out. And I think I had that confidence that she was going to figure it out. Some, once she won the second set and was, it, Mukova's level dipped just enough. You felt like, oh, this is, Arena's got this. And, you know, credit to Mukova to just play a phenomenal first serve on match point and, and just really gunned it, you know, against uh, Sabalenka, which she was serving for the match. But, um, from an emotional standpoint, you certainly wanted to see Sabalenka take it, certainly take it to the final, given all that she went through um, during the tournament. And obviously there's a lot of opinions, whether that's justified. Of course, you know, we're here to ask these players questions, a lot of tough questions. She's coming from, you know, a part of the world where that's not always, you know, (laughs) welcome. (laughs) And so, um, you know, was was peppered with a lot of you know questions about her stance as a Belarusian regarding the you know invasion into Ukraine on behalf of uh, Russia and and Belarus was you know questioned by a Ukrainian reporter 
after her first match was questioned again by the same reporter in the second round in a much more um, incendiary fashion. You know, there are some people who have a lot of opinions about that mat that press conference who did not they did not see it and were not there because I I believe that that press conference did not make it to video and was not circulating anywhere. And I don't think the transcript does what that exchange was justice in terms of just how uncomfortable it was. And obviously, you know, that reporter is very invested in in what's going on in Ukraine and you can't falter for that, but it was, it was a very uncomfortable situation. And so for her to say she didn't feel safe to come to press felt like a lot, but I think a lot of it was just in the name of, you know, avoiding that particular reporter, because then once that reporter was no longer on the grounds, Sabalenka comes back and answers, just like she answered the question after the first round, asks answers every question. So there's a lot of tough questions, and I would argue has put a lot more on, the, has probably put the most on the line of any of the Russian or Belarusians, was asked some really explicit questions and said, I don't support the government. I don't support the war. I mean, this is, those are some pretty big statements to make when you're coming from a country like that. So I gave her a lot of credit for coming back, you know, answering the questions that she was asked, never said no comment. That was enough for me. For some people, it's not good. That's not enough. And it'll never be enough because of the things she's done in the past. You know, I, the, the fact that she's was seen to be so close to uh, President Lukashenko. And yet this is a young girl who was, you know, in the country when it was, ha- you know, it, it, it's, there was a lot of, maybe perhaps projecting of Western values and and ideals onto these kinds of situations. And I don't think things, you know, we're coming from a country, you and I, where people make a big show out of skipping White House invitations and turning down the White House because, you know, I don't believe in this president. I don't believe in that. And you don't necessarily have that freedom when you're in every, you know, in every country in the world. And so given all that, and the fact that she then showed up against Svitolina played as well as she did, then showed up in the semifinal and was so close to the final, you just felt like the momentum was really in her favor. And I wanted to see that final. And I certainly think we'll have another Sabalenka-Shvantec final, barring catastrophe uh, this season. So I don't think that we will have to wait long for that. But yeah, she did not play phenomenal tennis. But yeah, she was able to find really, really good tennis for just when she needed it. And it was just, I guess, surprising and a little unfortunate for her that it didn't end up really coming when she needed it in the semis. It's very succinctly put. I appreciate you unpacking every aspect of that because I was waiting to have you on the show to talk about all things Sabalenka, and I think you put the perfect bow on that. So with that said, to make it easier for you, I'm going to go through my list of winners and disappointments. You just tell me if you want to unpack it or if you want to move on. Svitolina. My hot take is she was hitting the ball bigger than she ever had before, and I thought she played excellent. A revelation. I was listen. I don't get emotional for players that often. I'm an emotional person, but (laughs) my heart broke for Alina Svitolina when she lost that U.S. Open quarterfinal to Leila Fernandez. It just felt like, wow, this is never going to happen for you. And then when she, you know, left the tour to have her baby, you feel like, okay, her career is over. Or, and then she announces she's coming back and you feel like, okay, this is sort of a ceremonial comeback. It's about raising awareness for what's going on in Ukraine. And it's a lot more than that. I mean, she is playing some phenomenal tennis and you feel like, you know, is, you know, obviously you don't hope for something like this, but is this going to be, is this what inspires Svitolina's best tennis? The fact that she is fighting for something bigger than herself. I mean, you look at what Naomi Osaka accomplished at the 2020 US Open. You're really inspired by the Black Lives Matters movement. And 
this is something that is really propelled. Svitolina is a consummate politician in press, is speaking so eloquently and bravely about what's going on, you know, in her in her country. And it's just so it's it's such a phenomenal story for her. And it feels like there's really nowhere to go for her but up because she's not only, you know, inspired, but she's playing inspired tennis. And I did not see that coming. And I think that there's a really huge opportunity for her to maybe right some of the wrongs that happened maybe in her first career. So I was very impressed by her in Rolling Arrows. Perfectly put. Pavlochenkova, how high is she going? She was great too. <laughs> I didn't see that coming either. I was just this was a shocking French Open for me. I was, she looks in phenomenal shape. She was hitting the ball crazy good. I mean, we talk about players with that consistent aggression. I would, lo- I would be very fascinated to get another lick. I would be very I would be very fascinated to get another take at Shvantec Pavlyuchenkova. Obviously, when Pavlyuchenkova played Shvantec a few weeks ago, it didn't really work out that well for her, 6-love, six 6-love. Sure. Six but I think Nastia was really, talk about inspired, was really inspired by that match. You know, talked about it after, I think, her third round uh, in Paris, just feeling like, listen, I came away feeling like I was playing great tennis and I got killed. I got to just completely revamp my game. And we saw what modeling your game after beating Shvantec has done for Sabalenka. And clearly it's done some great stuff for Pavlyuchenkova already making the quarterfinals in Paris, but some really phenomenal tennis, just tremendous weight of shot, depth of shot, great power, was in a good headspace, was great in press as well. Yeah, very impressed by her as well. Yeah, I agree. I think on the disappointment side for the women, the Pagula loss to Mertens was just weird, but it's one. It's the first like weird loss Pagula's taken in about two years, so I'm going to let it slide. The biggest disappointment, ha- other than Rabakina getting sick, has to be Krejcikova losing in round one. It was just a forgettable clay court season for Krejcikova, who, like you, I thought was the fourth uh, be- fourth best player in the world coming out of the summer hard court swing. Uh, summer, excuse me, the first third hard court swing. And look, we'll give out our we're going to do our award show next week, folks, where we talk about the biggest winners, losers, all sorts of things through the first half of the year. But it was I would say the biggest disappointment in the women's side has to be that Krejcikova played no role in it. You wonder what talking about being the third or second best player on tour has done to Krejcikova mentally, because basically since she had that, you know, back and forth in Miami about, listen, I'm the fourth best player on tour. I belong in this conversation. She's basically been a non-factor and maybe there are some reasons why, you know, maybe she'll be, she'll want to talk about that when she's comfortable talking about it. But it's unfortunate because this is someone who was very much in the hunt and I think is just really lost right now and just doesn't know how she fits into the tour. You know, this is someone who won her first slam and then was injured for a lot of last year, didn't get to enjoy really any of the perks of being a top player. You know, she did what she did and then really didn't play at all last year. She comes back, you know, ranked way lower than, you know, she was number two in the world when she got injured and was someone who I think really wanted the spotlight, wanted to be that top player and and all the the benefits that come with it. And hasn't really been able to dig her way out. And you hope that she's able to find solutions to this because there's no reason she's a really talented player. You know, I like talking to her. I think she's really 
to be quite charismatic and wants to really embrace the role that she's chasing. I think it's just a lot of pressure that she's put on herself. Unnecessarily so, because anyone with eyes can tell you that she's very much a contender to certainly finish the year top eight if she plays great tennis or even plays good tennis. I mean, that's another part of this Mukova conversation. I mean, she's pretty much guaranteed herself a spot in the top eight right now. <laughs> Booked herself a trip to the, the WTA finals based on sort of the mehness of sort of, sort of five to to 15, I mean, Krejcikova should be there. And if she's not, you know, that's going to be a, hopefully a pretty soul-searching off-season for her because there's no reason why she shouldn't be in the conversation that she wants to be part of. Yeah, she's got to take the pressure off herself. I think that's completely fair. Now, on the men's side, I'm doing a pod later this week where I'm going to talk Echeverry and Nicolas Yari and guys like that. And I know you. Oh, am I invited? Well, I know how offended (laughs) you're going to feel that you haven't been invited. But sure, you're always more than welcome to join for those sorts of conversations. Will Gil be there? He will not be there. Oh, Um, then I'm busy too. Yeah. (laughs) We'll have our own podcast. We'll talk about Nico Yari and Echeverry all by ourselves. Fun fact, Nicolas Yari, born October 11th, 1995. Five days younger than me, but more importantly, what else happened on October 11th? Just think me, my background. Big day in Alex Gruskin's life. I don't know why I referred to myself third person. Was it college tennis related? No. Come on. The serious college tennis happens in the spring. Um, It was me related. I can't emphasize that enough. It has everything to do with a significant moment in life. What happens in a – here's my hint to you. Listen, what happens in a – Significant moments in a Jewish man's life. Oh, was it your bar mitzvah? October 11th, baby. There it is. Yes. Also, I thought uh, of another milestone. I said, well, that's probably not an appropriate one to volunteer. <laughs> I'm going to guess bar mitzvah. No. Yeah, my mom listens to the show. He, he became so a right. man. That we both, not, we, yeah, both yeah. Were, we were locked on that one. That's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> um, no, that or the fact that my dearest friend, Michael Azaparty, college roommate, we went to high school together as well. Um, he continues to say that this day he's like dude what you had to have because his birthday is october 11th and he's like you had to have your bar mitzvah on my birthday i'm like you know dude i was thinking about that when my mom made the date in 2006 because the temple was like this is the weekend you're available it's got to be here i was like wait it's michael as party's birthday um no that was not a part of the discussion anyways it's a pretty party though if he was invited yeah well i felt bad because it was nicolas yari's birthday and that was the real obviously incident the the real inclement condition um anyways yeah i'll save that conversation for a different time you have any other storyline we haven't touched on on the men's side that you'd like to discuss whether it be excitement disappointment that stood out to you i mean i was annoyed that hulk aruna showed up to that quarterfinal or didn't show up that quarterfinal (laughs) i mean we talk about the way casper was able to play in the final against Djokovic. i think if we couldn't get an Alcaraz Runa final or an Alcaraz Djokovic final, I think we wanted to see that contrast between Djokovic and one of the, the young guys. And obviously, with what happened with Cal- Carlos in the semis, ending as anticlimactically as it did. And, you know, I don't know what happened to Holger Runa in the, in the quarters because he played some really good tennis, uh, fearless tennis, I would say, in the fifth set of his fourth round and was coming to net, was like just really found like a new verb and so the fact that he showed up so flat against Casper was quite shocking I mean he still goes to show still how very new he is this best of five format um, and how much of his success has been in the best of three uh, whether it's you know uh, his three masters finals his masters title but um, yeah that was a head scratcher because I really thought Holger kind of had a highway to the final and I was 
didn't know who was going to make the final once it was a Ruda, once it was a Casper Rude, Alexander Zverev semi. It felt like either one of them had a pretty big shot at it. I mean, obviously one of them did not based on how it ended, but um, yeah, I, I was shocked that Holger Runa did not play better against Casper. It just felt like a, his moment to assert himself as the top Scandinavian guy as, as I'm just shocked that I, that Holger didn't play better tennis in the quarters. It was just, it, I was disappointed. I wanted to see a really cool, and especially after all the hype of that, of that match, I wanted that happened last year. I wanted to see a rematch and we kind of didn't get it. Yeah. I, I, for me, I would say the biggest, not, or as it relates to Holger, did he play a bad match? Yes. But it's sort of like the Alcaraz thing, where it's like my biggest takeaway coming out of this for Holger is stock up. Like, he's just ready. He is that good. You saw it all clay court season, and he played two bad sets. But even how he managed to turn around sets three and four and continue to compete well, like, yes, he lost. But I'm I'm pro Holger coming out of it. Like, I, I think he is one of the hottest stocks on the rise. I don't remember if you ended up keeping him on your clay court. I think you did on I your did. team. I, yeah, I like, had to, I had to that is him this, back. That literally brings you back in the hunt for this year's competition on the men's side because I think you bought the, all the correct – I mean, I, I've been – he's a tier one guy for me. I think a lock to win a slam this decade as well. But – like just the totality of things he can do. I know Elkaraz is better right now, but if you ask me who can do more things on a tennis court, I think the answer might honestly be Runa. Like I am just so in on Holger coming out of this clay court season. His tennis. Uh, I mean, Carlos can do a lot of stuff on court. I mean, it is it's it's a very it's can be weird to spend an inappropriate amount of your time debating these two. I would imagine over the next. 15 years. to 20 years. Yeah. <laughs> I just, it's going to be a long, we're going to really squeeze all the juice out of that lemon uh, and orange, because I just feel like we are, we're in for it. <laughs> but the two of them, they're just so much better than anyone else their age and are going to continue to prove that. Yeah. I, I well said, I agree with you. I, I also so. have Lorenzo Musetti on my draft. So I, I also have faith in him. Whoever well, might be listening to this. No, and he played some of his best. He's the best guy. Three DK guys, Rude, Musetti, Runa, all played their best tennis at the French Open. So there's a reason they sent you there, DK. And yeah, they knew I was watching. So they really like they played their best tennis in front of me. I really I appreciate it. Well, my last question to you then before I let you go. Obviously, again, you had all this time on the grounds. I asked you your best story. What's the best meal you ate? That's what the real people want to know. Well, I mean, on the grounds or in Paris? No, in Paris. Who cares about oh. the grounds? All right. I mean, I'm decent food on the ground, I have okay. to say. Um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm already – I'm starting my food tour in earnest over the last couple of days. When I first landed, I had a, a bowl of coca Uh okay. from uh, A La Bichobois, uh in Paris. And then I also got my first beef bourguignon yesterday and also today. <laughs> I had it for dinner and then I had it for lunch at two different restaurants. Uh, my favorite is at Chez, Chez Dumonet, at Josephine, which is in Montparnasse. Uh my allergies are really kicking in. Um, <laughs> oh boy. Um, but my favorite story actually from the grounds, and I hope that I tried to uh, employ this. I don't think I did. I think I spoke very quickly was that I was, um, uh, I was, I don't want to say confronted, but I was, I don't want to say accosted. I was okay. taken aside, perhaps not even taken aside. I don't, I don't really know how to describe it, but I'm sitting in picture me in uh, interview room two got my hat on i'm waiting for i don't even know who someone who 
if I knew they were not, if I knew this was going to happen, maybe I wouldn't have come to the press conference. Let's put it that way. I'm sitting there and I see a woman come out from behind the uh, the transcriptionist sort of row. There's like a glass mirror of, of a bunch of them all kind of feverishly transcribing for the uh, press conferences because you transcribe not only room one, but also room two. She comes in and she says, you ask very interesting questions. And I go, oh, I got a fan. Thank you so much. She says, but you speak too quickly. And it is very hard for the interpreters to understand you. I was like, uh, really? And in my head, I'm going, I've been in press conferences for like almost a decade. What do you mean I talk too fast? Uh, in fact, I I, I, I found Linda, the uh, the ASAP is extraordinary. I said, I've been in the room with you for five years and I've, I've been talking this fast and you have no problem with it. She said, well, I've been working with lawyers and they speak very quickly. So I don't personally have a problem, but I do like the fact that you're speaking more slowly. And so I have been trying to speak more slowly in press conferences while other people continue to tell me that I speak too quickly. Like the, I, they, no one knew that I'd gotten the memo. And so I had a WTA comms manager tell me in the middle of a press conference, you need to speak more, more slowly. You're speaking too quickly. I was like, no, no, they already told me. And then I had another person in the media center go, you ask really good questions. And again, me not remembering. I'm like, oh my God, thank you. Thank you so much. I didn't even think goes, but you're speaking really quickly in press conferences and you need to stop. And I was like, Oh my god! I mean, I'm characterizing it as like they were really bullying me, but I felt bullied, and that's really hmm. my feelings are more important than the facts in this situation. But okay. they were all very nicely telling me to to be quiet, uh, to not be to not be quiet, but to speak more slowly. And I will tell you, I find that it has actually been good to speak more slowly in press conferences because I am getting my questions out more clearly, and I'm not rushing them out. I what I was trying to explain to Linda from ASAP is that when you are in a press conference, and you know this being in Zoom and in person. When they, the comms manager calls on you and you have the mic, and you're staring at the player, you have their attention, and your biggest fear is that you are going to do or say something not quickly enough or not interestingly enough to lose their focus. And you just are trying to get everything out, all the buzzwords and keywords that you want to get out to the player before they glaze over. And so it is that fear that has driven me for the last decade to just say, look, I'm with you. You're with me. You get me. Let's answer that question. And I find that in spite of that, speaking more slowly, I have not lost the player's interest. And in fact, maybe I'm getting better answers because maybe they understand me a little bit better. But I was not aware I spoke this quickly. I mean, I was a little bit aware because I've listened to this podcast and I know that I kind of really ratchet it up. But I'm going to try at the end of this two and a half hour podcast to speak more slowly in general. But if, if I speak too quickly, know that it comes from a place of great excitement. And I'm so happy to to be speaking to all of you and for you to take my quotes out of context and tell me that I am saying some horrible thing about a player. Know that I appreciate it anyway. And know that you won't have to ever worry about speeding up my audio because I'm always going to be able to give you a lot of stuff to work with in a very small uh, file size. So all of which to say, that was my most interesting uh, Roland Garros story. And my best meal was the beef bourguignon from Chez Duminet, from Chez Duminet in Montparnasse. That was what I, that's everything I was looking for, DK. So you never for the record, here at Cracked Rackets, you speak at exactly the right speed. Maybe that's maybe people just listen to us at 0.75 because we both are quick talkers and it's just you instead of an hour and a half, you get even two hours of us. We'll say that I there are some God bless, there are some wacky accents and some weirdo speeds from me coming from these journalism press conferences. I did not know I was the problem. It felt very Taylor Swift. I was like, it's me. Hi, I'm the problem. It's me. Like I d- couldn't couldn't have known. I would I could have totally fooled me. I would have never known. 
All right. I love to hear it. Well, again, if you missed anything, DKTNNS on Twitter. You can read them all at tennis.com. A shout out to you and the entire team for the work you did. Made everyone's French Open that much more of an enjoyable experience. Of course, a shout out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, who has what sort of an editing job to do? DK, I know it's been a while, so you might have forgotten. Do you remember what sort of job it is? He does have an editing job on our joint Instagram account. He's going to be the one launching it in about 20 to 30 minutes. (laughs) That's how you bring home a bit. Yeah, here comes Gruskane. We're coming for you hard. I like to hear. Well, shout out to him as always. Shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. With all of that said, folks, there it is. Your 2023 French Open now officially wrapped up following the conclusion of this podcast. With all that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer Daniel Westoff, our friends at Tennis Point, from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. DK, what do we tell our listeners? And that's the break and we will see you all tomorrow thanks as always dk that's me done yeah